Clear prop. Star 73 is Cherokee, number two, following twin traffic, three mile final. There's something One trailer Bravo, Rakesford in runway 25, going uh, four mile final. This is Behind the Prop with United Flight Systems owner and licensed pilot Bobby Doss and his co host, major airline captain and designated pilot examiner Wally Mulhern. Now, let's go Behind the Prop. What's up, Wally? Hey, Bobby, how are you? I am fantastic as always. This week we had a listener send us a few questions about really radios and some other things, but it all has to do with the fact that she's about to start her IFR training. Her name is Vicki, and she asked us to talk about things like approach control, when am I talking to departure, what's clearance delivery really mean. Again, some more radio stuff, but we thought we'd take this opportunity and kind of put a number of things wrapped around IFR training and that day that you pass that private check ride, most people tell you, Wally, at that check ride day, they're going to start instrument training tomorrow. What is your normal response to that comment? My normal response is um, go out and have some fun first. Um, go out and fly. Get just, just, just walk away from the training environment and just, just go get in an airplane and fly for a little while. Um, you know. We we want to get better as pilots. We want to um, uh, hone our skills. But I think most of us are flying because we like airplanes. So have some fun with it first and just just try to fly different missions. Uh, go somewhere for a burger. Go go take someone um, somewhere and, 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 and hop in a cab or an Uber and, and go shopping or something. Just... Fly some missions first um, would be my my suggestion. Yeah, and keep building that cross country time because that's going to yeah. be important. But yeah. so don't do that shorter than fifty miles right. or somewhere that would make it more fun and exciting for sure. Um, and then and then make sure you're maybe logging some of that stuff that you need towards your your instrument rating. And I think that brings up the first big question: If I'm a private certified pilot now, next thing I want to do is start working on my instrument rating. I think one decision that pilots need to make that I had no idea about probably when I was at that stage was, should I do my IFR training, part 141 or part 61? If you're part of a, a collegiate type group, you're probably going to do a 141. I think other big schools might encourage 141. I'm a big fan of 141 training for instrument because there's one of the regs that you don't have to keep up with in 141 is the 50 miles across country, 50 my 50 hours of cross-country time for that instrument rating to be eligible to go meet Wally for that check ride. You, you, right. If you do 141, you need to do 35 hours of ground, 35 hours of flight time, um, but that doesn't require that 50 hours of cross-country to get a graduation certificate, which is really what you need in a 141 program to be able to go see Wally for that check ride. Right. And that, that's a lot of money. You figure plane rentals and anywhere from a hundred and ten to one hundred and fifty dollars an hour uh, times fifty. That's that's a lot of money, even if you were to split some of that time with friends. Yeah, yeah, and the requirement is fifty for Part sixty one for an instrument rating fifty hours of PIC cross country time. So a typical private pilot, you got to have a minimum of five. Um, most people have a little bit more than that. So let's say you have. Let's say you have 10. you still got 40 hours to go. Yeah, it's a lot, a lot of flying that you have to do just to be eligible, even if you had all the other requirements covered to be eligible for that check ride. Um, right. Lots of work to do there. So seek, seek someone out. We did a show uh, probably a year ago now on the advantages and 
pros and cons of part 141 and part 61 for all those ratings. Go back and listen to that show if you have more questions. Um, but I would say if, if you can find a school that does part 141 training, you're probably going to benefit unless you've done a whole lot of flying and this is secondary and later in your, your flying career, maybe you already have that 50 hours and it won't, won't benefit you as much. Right. Another thing that comes up a lot as people like Vicky and others ask us questions about instrument training and thinking about doing instrument training it comes down to avionics. And, uh, I think there's people that are biased for a number of different reasons on a number of different things, but I hear a lot, man, I only want to fly in a G 1000 or glass cockpit. I need all that TAA time. And, um, of course an autopilot helps tremendously, but that doesn't make it TAA. It's the glass cockpit. So, you probably see it more than I do, but I hear conversations. I only want to fly a G1000 aircraft. That's going to be hard to do unless you're uh, extremely lucky and have a school that has nothing but G1000 aircraft. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I'm, I come from a, a background of learning to fly a long time ago before a G1000 was even thought of. Um, and the, the thing about getting an instrument rating, the instrument rating that you get on your certificate will say instrument airplane. It doesn't say instrument airplane limited to G1000 only. So uh, as an examiner, we have a challenge of maybe doing a check ride in a G1000 airplane, but the, the second we issue that certificate, uh, you're legal to go out and fly in a steam gauge airplane tomorrow. Um, I don't know where the FA stands with if if they're looking at any kind of uh, uh, regulation with this or or or, or anything, but um, it, it's a, it is a concern. It's it's def- very much a concern. I mean, we talk about um, uh, flying airplanes with vacuum systems, and uh, sometimes the applicants have never flown an airplane with a vacuum system. But tomorrow they're legal to go out and do it, and uh, uh, you know there are very few things in life that you can be licensed for or certified for that you you can achieve that certification without ever having done it, and this is one of them. You you're you're legal to go fly down to uh, minimums at a very busy airport in an airplane with a system that you've never flown. Yep. And that could become, and it could be in that same G1000 system, meaning what if the G1000 went out and you're down to those three dials that are the right. backup gauges? Right. Uh, and that's, those are steam gauge gauges, right? Yeah. So I have a airspeed indicator and uh, just, just a reference to a few things that are probably going to make me land safely, but not if I don't really know how to interpret those and use those, right? Right. How many people this is a little bit of a soapbox for me, but how many people do you fly with in an, in a G 1000 type check ride environment that you feel may not have the, the capability to fly without that system? Yeah, it, it happens. Um, uh, and, and usually what happens with the map display when I, I do something to the map display to, uh, make it go away. Um, or there, you know, usually I'll, I'll just change the scale so that you see a big, blob of the united states over there so it it doesn't really do you much good i don't have my three points of reference right right um and you know it it uh 
you need to know where you are just by using using a VOR and using some kind of distance measuring um, capability. GPS and it would normally be what it is, maybe DME if you happen to have it in the airplane. But, um, uh, you know, it, it's a lot more than a video game. We, right. need, you need, you know, we need to be able to fly and, and know where we are using other than the map display. And, and I, as I think most examiners do, we do have you uh, turn off um, the ability to show your your position on your EFB, whatever whatever platform you're using for your your electronic flight back, which again can get very difficult if you get if you get really addicted to that and you don't ever turn it off yourself. It, that, that's a skill that will erode. Even if you learn how to do it for that checkride day, it is a skill that will erode if you're not um, practicing flying without it for sure. So that, excuse me, that brings up steam gauges and the majority of aircraft that are available for training and rental are going to be steam gauges. So you're going to have to understand that the scan for that. You're going to have to understand how not to become, even with a G1000, how not to become, you know, so dependent on one indicator that you get fixated on that. And during your training, Vicky and others, you're going to learn about fixation and how to, how to have a quality scan and know when you may be getting bad information. That's the the tricky part of becoming an instrument pilot is learning that maybe this information that I'm seeing is not accurate. And how do right. I overcome that? Because the majority of people that get really hurt, that's how they get really hurt. They stop trusting their instruments. Um, and so you, while you're being signed off for any instrument airplane, you need to be able to fly any instrument airplane. So I would highly encourage that you at least mix it up. You might want to take your check ride in G1000 or not, but, but mix it up either way. And I would say the same thing to a steam gauge person. If you have access to a G1000, you would be doing yourself a disservice not to learn how to scan in the G1000 as well, because you may have the opportunity to fly that in the future. And you surely don't want to be uncomfortable or not proficient and then put yourself in IMC in a system that you're not proficient with, whether it's the towards the G1000 or away from the G1000, you should make sure you're proficient either way. Yeah, and, and you know, one thing that we, we're required to do is a, a partial panel approach, we call it, but a, a, a approach with loss of primary flight display, I think, is the way it's actually worded in the ACS. Um, you know, one, one thing that in a steam gauge airplane, one thing that we, we really can't simulate in the airplane is a vacuum system failure. We can cover up the vacuum instruments, but it's very obvious when we got uh, you know, uh, instant rubber. failure. Yeah. We got rubber <laughs> covers, uh, you know, we got covers over the instruments. It's obvious that they have failed, but the thing that we, we really, we just can't simulate a vacuum pump failure because those instruments, first of all, they don't have a flag on you on them that tells you that they failed and they don't just instantaneously give you wrong information. They slowly do it. So that, that is where a simulator comes into play. Simulating a vacuum pump failure in a simulator is a is a extremely valuable tool and i don't care how much you practice it it's still going to disorientate you for some period of time because if you can make it not be instantaneous again like the uh putting a rubber cover on the the dial you you have a attitude indicator that starts to lean one direction that you're not that you're not really leaning or you're not really turning 
and a heading indicator that tells you you might be leaning or turning the other direction. Right. Boy, how disorienting can that be when you yeah. think your wings are level yeah. and then you start turning and seeing something different. You're going to be really out of whack really quick. So uh, find some time to do that practicing in a simulator if you have access to that because it's going to make you better and it's going to prove that you better have your scan game on um, because there is a backup to a backup for almost everything in instrument flying, but you do have to practice and you do have to know how to do it. Yeah. So some of what Vicky asked us for was really talk through the different layers of communication stations within instrument flying. Um, not sure if she flies at a controlled airport or non-controlled airport, but I, I would think someone who got their private certificate at a non-controlled airport who really talks to the pattern a lot um, and doesn't do a lot of other radio communications with different ATC agencies, then this could be all foreign, really, really foreign. So at this airport, we have a tower. We, um, we talk to that tower and get handed off quite a bit for flight following in a major city like Houston. Um, but this might be new to a lot of you. So we'll kind of go in the order in which we would talk to these people for, for instrument training. So, um, Obviously, you're going to learn how to do this, but you would put together a flight plan. You would learn how to do that flight plan, and then you would file said flight plan with the with ForeFlight or maybe a weather briefer or something like that. But you're going to ultimately file that flight plan. Right. Once that flight plan is filed, um, you're going to ultimately get in the plane, get ready to leave, much like you would talk to a ground control if there was such a thing. You need to talk to clearance delivery, either on the radios or on the phone, to get your clearance to go. Um, what is clearance delivery, Wally? Well, clearance delivery is an air traffic controller for the most part, and um, they're, they're basically going to give you, um, basically, um, you, you, you're going to file something that you want. You're going to tell them you want to file this routing, you want this altitude, and you want to leave at this time. And uh, now you're ready to go. They are going to tell you, okay, yes, you are cleared via the routing that you filed, or the, the routing may be slightly different. The altitude may be slightly different. Um, but they're going to they're gonna give you what your clearance is now. So um, um, now it may change. It may change in route. It may change quite a bit. But um, so, you know, it. At larger airports, there will be a dedicated clearance delivery frequency. At a smaller airport um, that's controlled, it's probably ground control. So you call up so-and-so ground or so-and-so clearance. Cessna 123, we like to pick up our IFR clearance to XYZ airport. And they're going to say something effective. You're clear to the XYZ airport as filed. That's Climb. a dream. That's a dream. If yeah, you get yeah, that. <laughs> yeah. Climb and maintain 2,000. Expect 7,010 7, minutes after departure. Departure control frequency 12345. Squawk 1234. And then you'd read that back, and, and um, now you have your clearance. So now you have this plan that you think um, is, you know, uh, you know, and if, if it's a different plan, if something is different, you certainly need to... Um, make some calculations uh you need to plug this in your efb and make sure you're happy with it because uh, you may now have a longer route and maybe fuel was critical on the original route now if you've got an extra certain number of miles it's going to take you longer going to burn more fuel uh, you may not be able to do this 
but in all likelihood it 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 will work i think that's an important point that i don't think i realized until i started flying my own routes ifr you do all this training and the training is simulated like all training is right we fly north we want to practice the Huntsville DME arc. So we, you know, my instructor's talking to me, we're flying out there. They tell me what heading to fly. I've got the foggles on at this point, but it's really not a long cross country of sorts where I have to file these different points to get there. And when I started flying to Austin quite a bit in IFR conditions, I was shocked how far South they would send me to get to Shiner versus just going direct to Austin. Right? So what is a 55-minute VFR flight at 8,000 or 7,500 feet to and from, it's a very different flight if I have to go 40 miles out of my way to get to Shiner. And there's a lot of times when they're landing, bigger planes are landing from the west that I have to take that path. I have to take that route. Um, sometimes I get direct on v, on clear days. I get direct. But uh, in IMC conditions, they're probably going to make you fly something that is route-based, so while I'm flying over there, I have to hit these fixes so that if I lost my comms, they would know what I'm expected to do. And these fixes become very important in real IMC conditions, but that could add a lot of flight time to your flying. Yeah, You, you might think you're flying with a crosswind all the way there, but diverting to the west might put me in a direct headwind for 45 minutes and change things drastically. So IFR flying, while sometimes easier, can also be sometimes much harder um, based on the route that you get assigned. So I'm talking to clearance delivery. A clearance delivery tells me I've got my clearance. If I'm at a non-towered airport, I might call to be released. And if I'm at a towered airport, I might tell them that I'm ready to go and they might clear me for my release. Uh, ultimately, I'm going to get in the air and the next person I'm going to talk to at a non-towered airport is going to probably be uh, approach and yeah. or departure yeah i think a lot of people think those are two radio stations or two different yeah. people but approach and delivery really are the same thing yeah pro you know they're not going to get upset if if you're actually departing and you call them approach or if you're uh arriving and you call on departure uh houston approach houston departure probably probably the same person probably if, if you if you call them the wrong thing it's there's certainly not going to be any uh offense taken and so they're managing, I don't know what a distance would be. We had we did a really good ATC show, if you want to listen to it, with, with an approach controller and some center controllers uh, that gave their feedback and thoughts about how they think about the traffic in their segments. But uh, an approach controller is probably managing 18,000 feet and lower, maybe 12,000 feet and lower traffic close to a metropolitan area. Um, and... They're guiding that traffic into an airport system, probably. Right. Whereas the next person you're going to talk to is probably going to be a center. Yeah. And a center is a much larger segment of airspace. Right. And in most cases, probably handling higher traffic down to lower traffic. I'm sure there's an yeah. overlap there somewhere, but probably all the way down to 4,000, 5,000 feet a center's managing. Um, but they probably have their own segment of airspace. So yeah, maybe. and there are some places where the center may actually be controlling you all the way down to the ground, yeah. out in the more remote remote areas. So just, just physically where these, these people are located, obviously the tower guy, I mean, you can see the tower at a big airport, um, um, a, a, long, a, a tall structure, the, the, the people that are controlling you to clear, 
cleared for takeoff, cleared to land, moving you around on the ground. They're up in that cab in the top of the tower. Most likely the approach control people are in a room probably downstairs, but they're physically uh, in that same building. Um, and then the centers are uh, totally off Business building somewhere, maybe. Yeah, yeah. It's a big federal building. And I can't, I, I wish I knew how many centers there are in the United States, but um, I'm going to say be, probably between eight and ten. Okay. Centers. Um, we happen to have one here, Houston Center. So you're, you know, after you and and you know, it's very possible that going from uh, maybe some from here to Austin, um, I, I don't know, but it's possible that you may never even talk to a center. You may leave Houston departure control. I, I don't know. You you yeah. It's things. all approach and, and departures. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So you you leave Houston departure and then you're going to call Austin approach. Now there's so, different segments in Houston, so right. I might talk, I might talk on one one channel for a while and then get handed off to Houston. You know that's where the approach and departure comes in. But I think I used to think it was the people closer to the big airport was the approach, and the people further away were the departure. But it, right. that, that has nothing to do with it either. Right. But you'll go from Houston approach channel one two three four five to Houston approach six seven eight nine, right. and you'll talk to those for a long time. Somewhere around halfway, maybe a little bit further west than halfway, they'll hand you off to Austin Approach, and you'll talk to them. I think it's just one channel you talk to on the way in, and then get handed off to that next tower, if yeah. there is such a thing. Yeah. Or they'll tell you, you know, uh, life-following services are you know, terminated, and you squawk 1200 and contact the common traffic frequency, right, or... Right. Radio frequency change approved. Right. But you're ultimately just talking to the, the people in the pattern at that point. Well, what going into a non-controlled airport, um, you you will stay on that squawk in, until you land, and then you need to call them up on the telephone. Now, uh, if, if you're able to, if it's VMC conditions, and you're able to cancel IFR, um, really that's, that's what I try to do if I can, just to alleviate me from having to make that phone call on the ground because if you go on the ground and you forget that phone call you go over to get fuel and you're putting your airplane away and oh gee did i call did Mess, i call messing up a lot of people and i i got sideways in my thought there i was thinking of my flight following days to to austin and how i would handle those uh those flights but yes under ifr you would keep that squat code and either call or cancel short of the airport if you had vmc conditions and you know if you call if you call the controller the wrong name uh they're not going to get upset with you you know a lot of times i i i uh you know i'm flying along and and the the, the person will say am i am i talking to center or approach well if if you're talking to approach and you call them center they're going to answer you it's it's just not that big of a deal um i know flying with the airlines i mean uh I usually don't even say the name of the controlling agency. You know, if I'm going from from out of Houston, going north, um, you know, you're talking to Houston Center, then all of a sudden you're talking to Fort Worth Center, and then maybe Kansas City. Um, you know, when I when I check in, I'll just say Center. Right. Um, so, you know, because you, you 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 forget who you're talking to. Yeah, I've had I've had those moments both alone and with other people, and I'm like, oh my gosh, who am I talking to? 
in early days it was as a departure or approach. I don't know, but yeah. I think I think those things aren't the things you need to be worrying about. And I think I think approach controllers and departure controllers realize that um, that's the last thing you need to be thinking about. And they really don't care either. They're right? Not, they're not worried right. about what your nomenclature is. Right. Um, back into the IFR world, I think from a training perspective, and hopefully we covered your topics there, Vicky. But the the big thing that I think people struggle with a little bit is our holds. Um, there's three different types of entries. People struggle with those entries. There's rules around holds. There's, um, there's what they call standard turns and, and you might be told to turn the opposite direction. So, uh, holds are a big part of IFR training. Um, you, you do a hold with every applicant while you've done a lot of oval loops in your days. Um, one minute tracks in, in these single engine aircraft, um, do you think students are pretty good at their holds? Applicants are pretty good at their holds. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> that's uh, that's a loaded question. Um, yeah, I, we could we could all probably do a lot better. Um, just remember the the entry is um, it's a recommended entry, and um, just by pro if if you if you see one of those charts where it talks about shows you how you know the different. 60 to, degrees, 30 degrees. Yeah, yeah, how to figure out how to what kind of entry to make. Just know that half of the entries are direct entries and and the the other half is split between a parallel and a teardrop. Uh bottom line is when you hit the holding fix, when you hit the holding fix. I mean, if you're trying to figure out what kind of hold you you want to make, just or or entry, just look at all three types of entries. Okay. If I did a direct, I would have to do this. If I did a teardrop, I would have to do this. If I did a parallel, I would have to do this. You, when you hit the holding fix, you want to make the smallest turn possible. And if if you kind of use that rule of thumb, okay, this is what a teardrop would look like. To do a teardrop, I'd have to turn 10 degrees. Uh, a direct, I'd have to turn 170 degrees. Uh, parallel, I'd have to turn 40 degrees. Well, that tells you. It, yeah. it, it's a teardrop entry. So you want to make the smallest turn when you hit that initial holding fix. I guess I've always wondered, how often do major airline aircraft get asked to hold? Not a whole lot. I, I would say a, a, in, a in a year, um, I might hold three times, okay. maybe. Interesting. And, and that, that might be on the high side. Have you ever been asked to hold in a in a single engine aircraft on a real IFR flight that you can recall? Uh, no, I haven't either. I, 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 and that's one of those things that we that deteriorates, right? I on our check ride, you told me to hold six miles west of Dayzetta on the 110 radial or 270 radial, and I nailed it. I know I knew how to do that. Yeah, you put me in a plane today and tell me to go out there and do that. Yeah, I'm gonna have to do some math and write some stuff down and program some stuff to make sure I'm right at that point. But at that day, I you could have told me just about anything, and I know I had the skills at that time. Yeah. So if that you, you might not get asked in your six year career flying, 
But when they do, you better be ready to do it because you are certified to fly in IFR conditions, right? right? And um, and you know there are, there are two kinds of holds. There's a published hold, and then there's a non-published hold. Um, you know when 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 ATC says hold as published, that's a score because boy, you've got it. You got it you, written down. You for got you. the picture drawn for you, and and hopefully you kind of have an idea of where you are on the approach plate or on the in route chart, whatever, wherever the the hold is published. But hold as published is a good deal. Yes, sir. Especially if you have it programmed into your autopilot. Right. That's even better. Right. Because um, it'll start the stopwatch for you. That seems to be the one thing I always forget to do, yeah. no matter what kind of hold it is. Um, and then I think to continue on, the what, what is the IFR training about? Obviously, there's a bazillion little rules on when you file um, an alternate, what you're supposed to do in lost comm procedures, et cetera. You'll learn all those things. And I think we we really spend a lot of time in training on how to read an approach plate, how to interpret that approach plate, how to 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 fly that approach plate the way ATC and the approach plates expecting you to fly that approach plate, and then more importantly, probably what to do if you have to go missed, right? Yeah. What are those missed instructions? What are those missed instructions if they're altered? What happens if I lose comms and they've been altered or not been altered? It's a lot of rules based training and probably branching off of of those things that are rules based on whether you have comms or don't have comms. Right. And uh, all that stuff can can be become very, very important if you're really an IMC and you happen to lose comms. Um, thank goodness for me, I've not had that situation happen, and uh, I hope it never does happen. I will say this. Even, even the older airplanes that were out here flying around, I mean, 1940-year-old uh, airplanes aren't, aren't – too much out of the question but even the older airplanes the radios in them are usually pretty doggone good yeah and and the chances of a lost calm scenario are are pretty remote um i i believe that if you have lost calm you're probably going to have lost nav really I, I, you know i think i think that if if the, if you have lost comm the reason you have lost comm is for a total electrical failure yeah so we don't we can't navigate either so if the weather is below uh you know let, let's say it's a thousand overcast everywhere how are we going to get in and that's something to think about and it there's no there, there's no clear answer i mean uh every scenario is different but, um, I mean, we can sit there, well, if we have lost comm, we fly our last filed routing, and when then we fly this approach, well, if we don't have the ability to navigate, how are we going to do that? And it's something to think about. Yeah, it's not just the compass that's going to save you there. You're right. going to have to have another mechanism. And I, th- I think if you have an EFB, you're probably going to need to depend on that at some level, for sure. I know I would depend on that, and I would have been declaring an emergency, and no one would have heard me as I did that. Um but as we always say, if you haven't practiced that and you think you're going to ever need it, you might want to go out and practice it because um, it's going to be much harder to do if you've never, ever done it before, for sure. Yeah. So we could go on. We could go on for 35-plus hours on all the things you need to learn from a ground perspective as it relates to IFR training. Hopefully, we covered all the items that Vicky asked us to cover from the different types of air traffic control stations you may talk to. Um, as always, whether you're an IMC or VMC, fly safe and stay behind the prop. 
Thanks for checking out the Behind the Prop podcast. Be sure to click subscribe and check us out online at BehindTheProp.com. Behind the Prop is recorded in Houston, Texas. Creator and host is Bobby Doss. Co-host is Wally Mulhern. The show is for entertainment purposes only and is not meant to replace actual flight instruction. Thanks for listening and remember, fly safe. <laughs>